0: A brand new episode of dive cuts uh, I've lost track of what episode we're on here man I'm gonna say 24 uh, 25 something like that um, we're here to talk Missouri basketball uh, Missouri just wrapped up the SEC tournament um, and by wrapped up I mean they were bounced in the second round um, or in their second game I should say uh, to, to Arkansas in a pretty ugly game Uh, They did beat Georgia, which uh, I think before the tournament started, you and I were both kind of saying, we kind of thought this looked like it would be a sort of a one win and and then they're done. And that's what happened. Um, So I guess I should start with saying, Matt, hey, uh, how are you? I'm well.
1: Uh, It's going to be kind of a normal uh, week for the greatest week of the year. Uh, We have the NCAA tournament back, so that's always good. Um, and Indy is all revved up to go to have 67 teams here, uh, driving around. We've got road signs out welcoming them. We've got uh, stuff up downtown welcoming yep. them. Uh, the, the state's ready. The state is ready for this. Um, so th- that's kind of cool. Uh, I-, I moved here uh, around the time of the 2015 Final Four. And it's it's no lie, when, when the NCAA tournament's here and... Uh, it's a it's a major weekend. Usually, the second weekend or a final four, it the city uh, takes on an added buzz. So even with uh, the current uncertainty, and uncertain times we live in, you can still uh, feel like there's something palpable around Indy, and that's cool when that happens here, um, especially for this event.
0: Well, I am I am pretty stoked uh, that we're, we're all the way at tournament week. We've we've made it. Um, this is. The, like, championship week going into uh, the first week, of the NCAA tournament, has always kind of been, like, you know, my favorite two weeks of, of basketball. I just, I love championship week. I love all the conference tournaments. I love the teams getting excited for, uh, you know, going to the NCAA tournament. Um, and uh, and then you, you kind of flip the script and, and get into, like, the... Like the first two days are just wall-to-wall basketball, and then you get into like the second round. I always feel like like the the third and fourth day are where you just get some phenomenal games, um, you know. And so there's just like four days of a lot of basketball, a lot of great basketball, a lot of fun uh, games, and you know some blowouts and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm after after not getting a dose last year. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm ready to to dip back in. But you and I need to uh, sort of make sense of what happened to Missouri in the SEC tournament. Um, I don't really think there was a whole lot of surprises that happened. Um, I was a little, I guess, disappointed in that they weren't quite able to get separation from Georgia the way I was kind of hoping that they might. Kind of makes sense when... You know, I think that Jeremiah Tillman in that matchup gives them a big advantage, and he was just sort of so-so. Uh, and then the very next day, that Arkansas game went just about like I thought it would. I thought it would be a really ugly game. I thought both teams would shoot terribly. I thought it would be fairly low-scoring, uh, despite a, a, a decent pace because both teams like to kind of get up and down the floor. Um, and it was like it was it was pretty brutally officiated. Um, and, and in a way that, like, I really don't think it was that much of an advantage for either team. Um, but it definitely impacted the way that the teams were playing. And it's just like, when you get to, like, 20 to 25% turnover rates for each team, and, like, half of those are offensive fouls, it just it, it takes a lot of the excitement out of the game and, and and makes it, I don't know, like, barely watchable.
1: Yeah, and there were... It wasn't just that game, I think... Over the next couple of days, there were three or four more games where the charge count or the charge calls were just absurd. And I don't know if it was a point of emphasis coming in, if the officiating crews had sort of like, you know, received any sort of notice or received any feedback from the consortium that the kind of like routes people through the SEC uh, or that part of the circuit. I have no idea, but a lot of offensive fouls called throughout that tournament. Um, I think you and I are in agreement that. The refs are enforcing a rule, but it's the language of the rule that's the problem. Um, yeah. I think, as far as what we, the spirit of what we define as legal <laughs> guarding position, should not be yeah, run I, to I, a spot I, and plant your feet. I don't think.
0: I think. Yeah, I think. I think my my uh, several tweets on the subject. Uh, you know, right after the Arkansas game, probably um, went in as as far as as. As I could go on it, I, I know that you um, and we've we've talked about this in the past. I mean, not maybe not extensively, but it, maybe this is a, you know, something that we can review during the off season. But at this point, the whole uh, the whole purpose of like them revamping the rule book in the last few years has been to try to create more freedom of movement, try to give the offense a, a little bit more of an advantage. And uh, I think it's gone the other way.
1: Yeah, the the player control foul has, has, at least the way it's enforced, I think has had the opposite of the intended effect. I think they've done a lot of good things in terms of the hand-checking calls, and I think they've done a nice job even moving the three-point line out to create more space on the floor and force teams to space a bit more, but... I don't think. I mean, but has it done that? I like, think. A, it, I think it's, another... it's been an effort to do that. I mean, <laughs> like,
0: I just think like maybe it's the fact that Missouri went from you know shooting like 36 percent as a team to shooting you know barely thirty percent. I didn't say it team. helped shooting.
1: I thought it was supposed to help spacing, <laughs> at least where you put bodies. Yeah. On the well,
0: but but that, I I think that's part of the thing is I think that where the line was before it made more kind of like regular non-shooters like still kind of a threat so you at least had to Um,
1: you at least had to to keep a guard within proximal distance so you could keep teams from clogging the floor out and stuff it was yeah i I get that argument but i guess my point is that they've they've tried to do some things that you would logically think would make sense but not fixing the player control foul has has probably been one that i think if you could find a way to legislate it to change it from and to remove the value of running to a spot and playing your feet. I don't think that's how Mr. Naismith intended the game to be played. I don't think that's how we've ever won the game to be played. And I think it unnecessarily rewards the defense for not really guarding the ball, for not playing legal defense. Um, yeah.
0: and so and as like there's a difference between like like walling up and and, and challenging a shot Uh, Like even um, as you're, I don't know how much of the big 10 tournament you watch, but um, former uh, top target for the Missouri Tigers, uh, EJ Liddell, a guy that you and I both love watching play basketball. uh, He loves to bang down the post and occasionally like the defender will just wait for him to sort of throw his shoulder into him and they'll just fall over. Um, And like, there was one moment i think in the pretty sure it was um i think it was the michigan games i think it was Chandy brown who was guarding him and and like chondy just stood his ground and they just i mean they just they just bumped each other for two or three times in a row and Chandi challenged a shot i can't remember if EJ made the shot or not but it was just like it was it was like refreshing to see somebody not just fall over the second there's contact well, they don't, and they don't, uh, 10, and, they 10, don't re- and
1: they don't enforce the flopping warning enough. Like we see it early in the season. Like you'll see flop warnings through the first ten game of non-con, and then they go away. Like they just stop enforcing it. So either you're going to change the player control file, or you're going to consistently enforce the flopping rule, and yeah. and you're going to hit teams with it, and it's going to cost teams a couple of guys. It, it's got to go one of two ways: either you change the rule, or you really empower officials and you really make it a point of emphasis to to even if it involves some more replay reviews which people hate but if you're gonna if you punish teams for flopping you disincentivize a little bit of that behavior but overall what i was getting to was like you said it it, it impacted missouri more because ultimately they didn't have the size down the stretch to compete on the glass i think when you go back through and you look at you did it in stuff. I think there, you- were,
0: there were two uh two offensive fouls called on Jeremiah Selman and two on Mitchell yeah. Smith. Um and and both those guys fouled out. Yep. So uh
1: the wow. impact is though when you go and look at when Arkansas takes control, I think two of the buckets during that eight when they extend the lead, when it's tied fifty fifty and they push it to fifty eight fifty, come off. Put backs by Justin Smith and then no-take getting to the rim and somebody trying to rotate over to account for the lack of rim protection and a foul on the drive. And so Arkansas gets free throws out of the deal. They push the lead out. Missouri now doesn't have its best offensive player in the post. Arkansas is freed a little bit now to guard the ball a little bit more aggressively, and Missouri just wasn't getting the kind of performance it needed from a guy like Mark Smith. And even while Xavier Pinson, I thought, played better in that game than he did against Georgia, just wasn't able to really get revved up to the kind of level that was going to be able to offset, you know, Tillman's absence. And they just didn't have enough offensive punch down the stretch. But I thought it played out like we thought it would. I think Missouri has shown that it can handle this Arkansas team. It's gotten the pace where it's wanted it. Now, there were 80 possessions in the first game, but it felt like in every game, Missouri's dictated when those transition opportunities happen. Like, the transition opportunities tilt more Missouri's direction, and Arkansas's not been able to really get the game at times to its pace. I just thought Missouri, in the first, in the second game when they played in Columbia, didn't have enough rim protection, and they didn't do a good enough job in pick-and-roll defense. In this game, they just didn't have size down the stretch, and it cost them both games. But it went, went yeah. about like I thought it was going to go for them, and
0: well that's the thing like yeah, you know, I I think I point, kind of pointed out in the comments section on Rock Nation, you know, people were just talking about you know, like how was Missouri going to, you know, make up this gulf and it, not exactly in those words, but yeah, you know, like Arkansas finished second in the league um and is there a wide gulf between like the team that Arkansas was this year and the team that Missouri was this year?
1: Not when you look at how they played in in quad one games. They're actually pretty comparable. Well, well, I'm saying, like, if you were to look at the quality yeah, of the I, and I how think, they played against the best teams on their schedule.
0: I'm just talking about, like, they played against each well, other. Well, I'm getting that. Like, that's a good sample When you size. watch
1: them head to head, they're comparable. When you expand out and look at how they've played in quad one games, at least in terms of efficiency and how they operate, they're fairly similar. The difference is, is Missouri. Has taken worse losses to worse teams, like within quad two, than Arkansas has, and that that's really the difference. There is the metrics are going to tilt Arkansas's way, but I think in games that matter and in head-to-head games, the gulf
0: isn't all that wide between them. And yeah, and I just like that was kind of my point. Is, is I know, but I was expanding. I that. think, I say, uh, I think right.
1: you can say that if Missouri, the gap between them on the floor this year was not as wide as might have been might have been seen early on i think missouri played better early arkansas played better late and it kind of comes out in the wash
0: yeah Yeah. You know, two very very close games uh against each other came down to final possessions uh and one game that missouri was able to kind of dictate quite a bit I, I i actually think that the teams are incredibly close Um, and the reason that Missouri was able to dictate so much more over Arkansas in that first game came down to the fact that Arkansas hadn't played anybody, um, you know, like Missouri went out in their non-conference schedule and and played really, really good teams and and Arkansas in large part really didn't and played everybody at home. Uh, and, and so I think that, you know, there, that was a, a bit of an awakening for, arkansas and it snapped them i think that, that was their first loss of the year and they ended up losing what like
1: they were at a weird
0: three of the next four they were
1: without justin smith they were coming out of a conference schedule that now eric musselman says people didn't understand what they were doing with their non-con schedule people were criticizing them, but didn't really understand what arkansas was trying to do in its non-con schedule
0: play a bunch of home games
1: yeah i mean they basically borrowed the jim Bayheim <laughs> scheduling protocol Play a bunch of games at home. Try and bring in some not so crappy mid majors, but not too tough mid majors, like Abilene Christian or Oral Roberts, which are admittedly like those are NCAA tournament teams, but you know they're not. If your home, if your entire con, non-con schedule is made up of them, you're still not, I think, necessarily challenging yourself. There, they their big game was supposed to be at Tulsa, but that got canceled because of COVID. Um, and so I just thought they were a young team trying to figure it out. They didn't have Justin Smith there.
0: The 125th ranked Tulsa Golden Hurricane. That was
1: that was it. Um, but like you said, I think they were at a different juncture. I think Missouri, like you said, all year continuity was Missouri's friends. Missouri had a better sense of itself. It knew who it was as a team. It had played some tough games early. Caught Arkansas flat-footed there. Second game, they don't have Tillman. Missouri still. You know, with Arkansas at full strength, still finds a way to take that to overtime. And I thought if Missouri had the offensive fouls not been called on both teams, I thought Missouri would have found potentially found a way last week. I just thought that there were longer stretches where Missouri was able to really dictate tempo. If there were pushes, if there were opportunities to push and transition, there were more live ball turnovers going Missouri's way.
0: Yeah, uh, I would say the two things, if, if the offensive fouls had been a little bit more under control and, and not gotten Missouri's bigs out of the game, and if J.D. Note hadn't decided that whatever he had eaten was uh, going to cause him to throw up, but also give him uh, the magic touch in the, that first half, I mean, I think he had like half their points. Um, and when you consider the way that that first half was played, uh. I think it ended up being like thirty-one to thirty or something. Thirty-two, like that thirty, thirty-two,
1: thirty-three. Missouri at half.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, and he had like fifteen. Nobody else was able to get anything going. They um, kept Moody under wraps like, all night. Yeah, like Drew Smith was awesome on Moses Moody. Like I think there's a lot of good takeaways that you can have from that game, um, and hopefully that can kind of carry over uh, for for what they're going to try to do uh, to Oklahoma. Um, Both those teams.
1: <laughs> are looking to kind of pick things up after bumpy stretches to close the season. Um,
0: So the SEC finished, uh, Alabama beat LSU in the championship game. LSU beat Arkansas in the semifinal. Alabama beat Tennessee in the semifinal. Um, nothing too shocking. Pretty chalky, Uh, pretty chalky
1: week in Nashville.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think LSU is a more talented team than Arkansas. They, uh, their penchant for uh, declining to play defense will occasionally catch up with them a little bit more than, than the Hogs, who I, I do think are uh, a good defensive ball club. Um, but yeah, LSU's fifth in adjusted offense and 125th in adjusted defense. Um, so uh, yeah, I, th- I think that sort of finished the way we all kind of thought it could. I like, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that Alabama won um i think you and i both like Nate it's a lot uh i think his ability to kind of get guys that have not always been great defenders to really buy in on defense you know obviously herb jones has always been a good defender but um yeah, they weren't really great on defense last year and they they've been great this year so uh that's been good to see um but yeah so let's let's talk about this ncaa tournament
1: there's the, the um, team. The team that we ostensibly write about is in it, so that's 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 good. I, I, I is it not?
0: It is like we are. We are. Uh, we knew that Missouri. Even said this last week. We we know they're in the tournament. We didn't really know where they where they were going to land. Bracket Matrix had them uh, as like a low six, right?
1: Uh, low six, high seven.
0: Low six, high seven. Um, so kind of like on that cut line between six and seven. I thought that was fair. I thought they got hosed by the committee.
1: I think the committee made some uh, curious decisions up and down the line. And, like, we can – I typically think, like, we can quibble sometimes with where teams wind up in the protected seed range. Like, I think Arkansas is a little high. I thought Arkansas was probably a four. They're a stronger – they're a pretty – they're, you know, a three – Texas made a push. I thought Texas probably should have been like a five there, a three. I know Oklahoma State closed strong, but like if you're gonna and we'll get to this in a minute, if you're gonna use the net and the met and, you know, predictive metrics, Oklahoma might be state might be a little bit high on the seed line. Like they're thirtieth in Kimpom, and they're probably somewhere closer to that in terms of net rating. So Um There are like some quibbles there. But I think where things got just interesting for me really was when you started to get into and this will and i promise we'll get to missouri but when you started to like look at teams like clemson like clemson is a seven seed clemson won three very good games early on in the season in the first month or so of the season they beat purdue alabama and florida state they then went on a covid pause early in acc play came back got shellacked Closed well, beat some okay teams, like did not lose games down the stretch, but didn't beat anybody particularly great down the stretch, and then bowed out to number 132 in Kimpom, Miami in the first round of the ACC tournament, and still wound up a seven seed. Um, just interesting to me there. North Carolina has two quad one wins. They had a bunch of quad two wins, went undefeated in quad two, but two quad two two quad and one wins nothing really great like in the in that batch either they wind up on the eight line you know Georgia Tech kind of the same thing Georgia Tech you know, puts together a couple good wins late benefits from a covid related can you know removal of Virginia plays for an ACC title wins it beats Georgia Tech gets on the eight gets on the nine. gets on the eight line I mean excuse me the nine line. And there's Missouri. Seven quad one wins. Um, by far, like if you were to look at teams in the number six to nine range, they have the most of any team there. Uh, their efficiency was middle of the pack in those games, so not great, but not terrible. You know, And they wind up on the nine line. They wind up behind Florida and LSU, who I think have pretty comparable resumes, both Florida and LSU have lesser, or I should say fewer quad one wins. Two, they each have five of them. And all three of those teams took a handful of double-digit losses in SEC play. Like, you could look at LSU. LSU's, I think, got four or five. They have four double-digit losses. LSU's got, like, three or four. Missouri's got three. And... LSU oh, so got bombed. Got bombed Bob. by 30. At- at-
0: by 30 at home
1: to Alabama. And Missouri winds up in the nine line. I, I have Side a notes, piece coming... Uh, I, I will plug a piece coming out in a couple days I'll where I explain this more, but my... But what I will say here is pretty obvious. The net rating here dragged them into the abyss and the poor performances and losses, I think, if you look at those 16 teams in that kind of 6-9 to nine range... Missouri's efficiency and performance and losses was near the bottom, and I think that's what wound up hurting them. But as I'm sure we'll discuss, the question here is how much sway should those predictive metrics have had in setting the seed line versus what we typically think should happen, which is the body of work that you've put together should be the ultimate arbiter of where you're seeded. I don't I think the thing that frustrated me was that you could go through the seed list and you could see quad one wins mattered more for this team net mattered more for this team and it just seemed like if Mitch Barnhart's going to say after this you know we used strength of record to decide the field and we used you know predictive metrics to set the seed line there's some contradictory seedings in there that sort of make me wonder just how they use it or how those debates unfolded yeah so uh.
0: i wanted to to throw a quick side note because i know that you had uh engaged with a friend of the pod uh cory keys on the whole lsu and their three-point defense um john petty was eight of ten from three-point range josh primo was six of eight from three-point range Javon Quinterly, six of seven from three-point range. Uh, in the in that game at LSU, I I would think like the the guys that are probably the best shooters on you want to close them down Alabama's team. You might wanna you might wanna close down those run guys. run them off the line. And and they made 20 3 pointers, twenty three pointers. The other um, thing is... Ken- so I, I think we, we might be overestimating LSU's uh, three-point defense.
1: Kim Palm has written extensively on his site and for The Athletic that the better gauge of a team's defensive ability is two-point defense because three-point shooting is more prone to volatility than two-point shots. And if you look at the points-per-shot value of a three and a, and a layup, they're basically equal. LSU gives up a crap load of straight line drives to the rim. So even, okay, yeah, LSU might close down some shooters, but they're still giving up blow-bys to the bucket for shots that in the end are worth an equal value. It doesn't
0: matter. They're 330, or 330th in the country in three-point attempts to field goal attempts, which tells me that they're giving up a lot of threes. Like, they're allowing three-pointers to be taken it's just a matter of the fact that the teams that are shooting those threes aren't making them like and again like this is where i like i agree with kempom i do think that like that's just a a a really difficult way to measure someone's defense is to look at an opponent's three point it's 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 almost like i i was joking a while back about um I think it was two years ago that Missouri had like this free throw defense that was terrible. <laughs> like their opponents were just shooting like a horrible number uh, percentage-wise of, of you know their free throws. Um, it recovered down the uh, down the stretch some, but I think yeah, to start the year they were holding their opponents to like fifty-five or fifty-eight percent or something like that, and it was like they're not holding their opponents; they just happen to be fouling the right guys.
1: But Missouri. Here, we've taken a long, circuitous way to say this. We think Missouri (laughs) got hosed by at least a seed line. I I could have seen them taking a drop to number eight just based on a procedural bump or having to make, you know, have to balance the regions or protect some seeds. That sometimes happens. A procedural bump isn't uncommon and it'll happen down. So if they had landed on the eight line. In, you know, the weakest region, I would have been like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. They, they took a procedural hit and got moved. But to fall to the nine line and then to move into the toughest region or to the top overall seeds region was sort of indicative of what the committee thought about the overall body of work that Missouri put together. And I just can't square that with what they said a month ago where Mitch Barnhart was on CBS Again, telling Greg Gumbel, what we're really looking at are elite wins. We are looking at, you know, wins against the top part of the net. Missouri's got four of them. So I don't... So I guess my... Yeah, that's the quad 1A, yeah, right? the quad 1A. Basically, did you beat top 30, some top 30 teams? And Missouri had four of those wins. And I guess... Again, we're not in the room. We don't hear the back and forth and the debates that happen and, and the cajoling and the lobbying, but I just don't know how you, as a committee, can say, we value elite wins and then put a team with seven of them in the nine hole in a, in a, on the nine seed line. I just don't see it, especially like when I think I tweeted this out yesterday Teams on the number 6 line had 11 quad 1 wins combined. San Diego State has one of them. Now San Diego State's done well in quad 2 and the metrics look good, but San Diego State hasn't played nearly the volume of quad 1 and quad 2 games. That's not me picking on San Diego State. I guess that's me saying In that case, maybe you make a you account for the weaker conference that they're in as opposed to the SEC, but I just struggle to see how, if you've got that level of wins, even if you've got four wins that are better than most teams' best win, how you wind up on the nine line. And the only thing I can fathom is we don't see the actual team sheet. Like we don't see. Warren Nolan does a great job producing a proxy of the old one, but we don't we don't see the the ingredients that go into the stew. Like with Kim Palm, I can look at almost everything. You know, I can look at a team page. I can look at raw efficiency margin. I can look at adjusted margin. I can see everything and I can basically like even go in and calculate adjusted efficiency for quad one wins using it, or I can come close to it with the selection committee. We don't know what deeper metrics they looked at with Missouri. We don't know if they saw that or if they just saw the top line at 47 and said, no, no, This is just too much of a too too far of a bridge to cross to put them on the seven line. But again, to me the the quad one wins should have been the counter balancing fact to that. So maybe don't put them on the five or six line. Maybe keep them on that seven eight cut line. Maybe make them a low seven seed. But I just I don't understand how how what rationale they used to put Missouri in the overall seed picture that they did. It, it's just hard to look at it and see a clear-cut, yes, I can see what they were doing. We can try and extrapolate and try and surmise, which I, I'll do in the piece, and it, which I think comes out Wednesday, but it's, it's just hard to tell. And you, you wish there was at least some transparent hint as to what was guiding the decision.
0: Well, right. And so this is, so I think you and I are kind of doing a couple companion pieces. People will be able to read them uh, tomorrow. Um, You were looking at trying to figure out how Mizzou fell. Um, And I was taking a little bit of a different approach in that the, I think the committee is again, misapplying analytics. So, If you like people that knew like the whole Jesse Newell thing understood that, you know, my, my bone to pick with, with Jesse was not so much that I thought his method of using analytics was a bad one, but I thought he was misapplying the analytics, uh, particularly early in the season. Uh, and again, like a, a big thing for me this year has been this is a really weird year and Ken Palm normally has a lot more data to go on and this year he just doesn't have the amount of data that he's used to by mid to late January. He's missing in some cases
1: five to ten games for every team.
0: Right and and but also five to ten games of cross-conference competition which is so important when figuring out these predictive analytics. It's one of the reasons why I think the Big Ten while I, I am a full believer in like the top of the big 10 as those teams being They're monsters really really good teams i don't think like there's this wide gulf of of like the the top of the big 10 versus the top of the sec versus the top of you know the uh big 12 um like i don't really think the difference and we've seen that like we saw missouri beat illinois it, does illinois look monstrous right now yes like they've they storm through. They beat all these top ten teams, but all those top ten teams are top ten based upon a a level of preseason expectation. Um, and and so when these things kind of happen, so like everyone's looking at the SEC as being down because Kentucky's down. Everyone's looking at the ACC as being down because North Carolina and Duke and Duke are down, right? And so there's this this underlying uh, bias that comes from the voters. Um, and that's why I've always felt that, that the metrics were important, but this is a year where metrics are going to give us more oddities because there is a lack of data. Uh, and so that's, I think that's why you see teams like Texas tech and Wisconsin, uh, so far up in the analytics. Um, and yet with pretty mediocre records, like if you dropped Wisconsin into the sec They'd probably be like eight and eight, you know. Like, like that's just you can watch Wisconsin play and say, like, yeah, they're 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 decent, um, but they're not like a top twenty team. But they were in the top twenty almost all year because of the Big Ten. Um, so I feel like I'm getting a a little off of my no, I think here. The, the, g-
1: the gist of this is: was there a point where? The Big 12 and the SEC became self-reinforcing by playing each other consistently. And you didn't have, even if it was crappy mismatches, like over, like blowouts of high majors playing overwhelmed low majors, those games are important because they kind of established the middle. They kind of helped seed the baseline establishment. They're like, these are what the best teams are doing against the weakest competition. This is how everything kind of filters out we have a good sense up and down across leagues how teams are faring against each other when you get into just the Big Ten and those teams are playing each other and you don't have Rutgers with five non-con games that and some possessions that are good and some possessions that are bad Rutgers can continue to look pretty good um, right I don't know if
0: Rutgers is ri- I mean Penn State was 35th in Ken yeah
1: and at 11 and 14. It just, it does not, like Indiana is 46th at 12 and 15. It Minnesota is 58th at 14 and 15. So, I mean, Minnesota might be the closest one you have because they were the ones that probably came closest to playing a full schedule. But the hard part for Missouri is, in this climate, where Missouri didn't have four or five games of non-con where they were absolutely hammering people you wound up in a situation where I think the losses they took at Mississippi State and against Ole Miss were objectively bad I mean those are big margins of defeat on the road not what you want to have happen but when you look at the pool of possessions Missouri had if Missouri has three or four games where they've blown out people by 20 it probably, and we've now got that across leagues, it probably does a good job mediating that effect. It doesn't have as much of an outsized effect as it did for Missouri. If you looked at teams 6 through 9 in the seeds, and you correlated their efficiency ratings in losses and their efficiency rating in quad one wins, there was a stronger correlation with their performance in losses than in wins. So for Missouri, the worse it played in those games, the more deleterious effect it had on its on its net rating. Whereas Texas Tech doesn't play so poorly. Texas Tech loses a lot of close games in the Big 12. The Big 12 has become self-reinforced because it's only played itself. And Texas Tech winds up in a net rating in losses that's equal to the number 71 team in Kimpong like, I don't know, is Texas Tech on its worst night the number 71 team in Kimpom? I don't know. But if there were other games in there that could sort of act as a mediator or that could sort of help, I guess, balance that result across all of its games, we might know. But I think what happened was, is in some cases, there were outsized effects of losses. And in Missouri's case, it hurt their net. And when the committee is really leaning on that, predictive metric to seed the field, it winds up putting Missouri in a position where it is now, which is on the nine seed line. So I, I, I think, to your point, the question is, how conscious was the committee of what was happening with the samples, with the stuff that was going in to comprise the, the samples that they were looking at? I don't know, but I, I don't necessarily think that I even would use a predictive metric to seed the field and probably not in a year like this one
0: well so i think that a little bit more of a uh, traditional way of looking at it would be something like the strength of record um i do think that you can develop uh tiers based upon the results you know the wins and losses yeah, this team beat that team. This team beat that team, and here, here's our our basic tiers. Like, I don't think you need. That's
1: why they created the quad an- system. Was to do that.
0: Was to. Well, right. Like, like you don't need analytics to to tell you that Gonzaga is really good. You don't need analytics to tell you that Illinois is good. To tell you that Michigan is good. Like, you can watch these teams play, uh, and they're good on both ends of the floor, and they win a lot of games. Like you don't, you don't need the analytics to tell you that where I think the analytics are, are helpful. And, and this is why, like, I, I, I do think they're helpful in telling a part of the story. Uh, and one of the things that I've, I think I've gotten away from a little bit from the way that, that Bill did it, um, is, as Bill tried to tell the story using the numbers and I use the numbers to tell the story, um, and, in in a way that, I've always been more about how the game played out than, like, the net results of the game. Um, You know, mainly when you think about, uh, I guess, my attention in recent weeks to some of Missouri's close losses. Uh, You know, everyone's kind of flipping out about, how uh mizzou has sort of lost the plot so to speak because they were 10th in the country um and now they're not ranked in a nine seed and it's like oh you know konzo lost the He like he 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 let the team go and all this kind of stuff and it's like no well none of that is true because missouri was was 10th in the country after they beat alabama and that Alabama game came in a time where Missouri had already had three losses on the season. One of those losses was uh, a 20-point home loss to Tennessee, uh, a 16, 15, 16-point 16 point road loss. loss to Mississippi State, uh, and a you know close-ish loss to on the road at, at Auburn, who Auburn at that, that time was, was playing a little better. Um, but they also narrowly beat the worst opponent on their on their schedule in bradley uh, at least according to the net rankings um so they they had a one point home win over bradley who was a that was a quad four win uh they had a uh
1: they nearly escaped a quad three loss to TCU. I think think TCU would have been quad three. Yeah, yeah. So
0: TCU was was before Alabama. TCU would have been a quad three game, and and that was an overtime game that Missouri needed. So so Missouri has always been this team. Uh, they had two blowout losses uh, to Mississippi State and Tennessee, and um, two
1: near and they, two near th- quad and two near bad losses that they escaped from.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> like, so what happened is we flipped to the second part of the season, and you know they had another couple blowout losses. We'll we'll sort of include, uh, we'll include the, the the Georgia losses of blowout, even though it was only ten points. Uh, blowout loss at Ole Miss. Um, and then they lost those close games instead of winning them. Uh, although they they did have the the, the close wins over Florida and Georgia. So two and. Three in close games, um, with a couple blowouts. Uh, two and four in close games. If you want to, if you want to include uh, the first Georgia loss, um, like this is the same team as they were earlier in the season. Their close game luck just sort of goes the other way, and that's like that happens. Missouri, Missouri got kind of lucky against Illinois. Like people, do we not remember that? Uh, Kofi Coburn got called for a intentional foul for hitting Mitchell Smith in the face. And I mean, like he didn't see Mitchell Smith, like that wasn't like an intentional, but you know, by the letter of law, it's a flagrant, it's a flagrant foul. It was already built a 13 point lead and I would nearly ate it for breakfast. <laughs> right. Like, like that, uh, I like, it, it kind of drives me nuts. Cause it's like, I, so I, I do think that Missouri deserved better by the seeding committee. I, I think that they deserved uh, at best a six seed, at worst probably a low seven seed. Uh, and I I feel like the the committee just they 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 didn't do their jobs properly because I think you look at the resume first and you use analytics to parse the differences. So you you build your seed list. And then, OK, we've got this this tier of teams uh, and and it's clear, like in and like you were saying, like in that that six to nine range, like Missouri has more quad one wins than all these teams like that should matter. That should matter. Results should matter. And it just it, it doesn't. The net ranking mattered and and analytics by its but like their nature like the reason ken Palm exists is he was trying to build an algorithm that could figure out what the vegas lines were going to be like how like because vegas has been doing this for years so that 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 was his goal was to build something that was predictive in nature And I don't think the NCAA tournament should be built on predictive metrics. I understand using efficiency margin. uh, And I think that efficiency margin is, is a good indicator of how good a team is. But the number one thing that should matter are the results, wins, losses. And that's what coaches get judged on. That's like, I mean, no coach is getting a contract extension if they're 500, but they're, hey, their efficiency margin was good.
1: Well, the the thing here is, like, you look at the six seeds in front of them. USC only, I think USC only has two or three quad one wins. Texas Tech only has four. BYU's got two or three. San Diego State has one. Oregon has two. UConn has probably, I think, three or four. Clemson's got three. And then you get to Florida on the seven line, who's got five. Now, those teams have some quad two wins. So if you were to look at, like, quad one and quad two wins combined they're pretty equal but when you like run a basic correlation on that on like quad two wins with net rating and seeding there's none like so it doesn't really matter it didn't it doesn't look like at least on that very like quick cursory review that your total quad your total in quad one and quad two didn't matter at all what really mattered in that range slightly more was quad one wins and net was slightly behind it but they were basically equal in correlation which that i get like that's fine that's fine there's not going to be one <laughs> thing that points to it but i guess coming back to your point it's really if we're not judging if the total amount of quad 1 and quad 2 wins don't matter and supposedly we're going to be equal in how we're weighting out you know net versus quad 1 wins it's pretty clear to me that like net mattered more because teams that had less quad one wins were seated in front of Missouri,
0: and yeah. like I I don't. And I agree. Like like it's it's difficult to judge and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, uh, San Diego State and BYU you know, a, a BYU teams that don't play the number of quad one games that Missouri does in their own conference. That's
1: where I think net is handy for those types of teams, where it's like okay, it was a weird year. We didn't have. BYU and San Diego State, like, weren't able to go out and, like, maybe hunt down another couple of potential quad one games against strong mid-major plus programs or some, good, or some average high major teams. Like, that's a case where I would have, like, wanted to see the efficiency margins and I would have wanted to look at the net rating and been like, all right, I think I could see, I get these programs were in a bind. I don't want to punish them. But, like, a team like Oregon, like, that's got two quad one wins and is You know, taking, I think, a couple... I want to look at Oregon's one, because I think Oregon and Colorado each have, like, some sub-100 losses in Kimpong on their resume. It's like, okay, you've got two quad one wins, but if you're Oregon... I'm pulling it up now. Apologies for taking a minute here. If I can type in. Like, I'm pulling up Oregon's page now. Oregon had... I think two or three sub-75 losses in Kimpom. So if you've got equal losses to Missouri that we would consider questionable and less quad one wins, Oregon's probably only in front of Missouri because the net rating looks better. And I just don't buy that because also Missouri beat Oregon head-to-head on a neutral floor. So it's... Again, you, we're slavishly devoted to metrics. We look at them. We can sit, you know, we believe in their validity and their utility. But I, I just, I don't think they should be a substitute for your for judgment and for a reasoned debate around actual results on the floor. Because, look, I, we all use Ken to try and build brackets, and it's fun, and it helps us win pools but that's not what the committee should be trying to do here. The committee should be trying to look at the resume and say, these teams objectively performed well in these games, and we're going to reward them with a, with a seed that comes up with that. It doesn't mean that you punt on analytics. You don't use them to help resolve debates, but just frustrating to see in some cases, you know, teams rewarded for having less on court results and less on court productivity. So, um, we'll see if how that met's out and how that weighs out in the tournament, and what that does. Cause I think there's going to be some issues up and down the seed line and up and down.
0: Well, and that's another thing is, is because of the nature of the tournament, like the committee is going to be proven right in some areas and wrong in other areas, but that should never be the case for seeding where you seed, uh, like trying to be proven, right. You should, it should be <laughs> a resume based reward system. Uh, and you should reward teams for playing tougher schedules and succeeding against those those tougher schedules. Um, and like honestly, if you put Missouri to five and they drop that 512 game and everyone be like, you see, this is why you got to use the metrics like no, like that's not the point of the tournament. The tournament is is set up to be a a, a reward for the end of the season. It is it is set up so we can determine a national champion. Uh, and give teams their reward for, for what they accomplished during the year. And if you if you just take away like all of that and say now we're just gonna use this this analytics system to uh, to to judge, you know, where you're gonna be seated, then then what's what's the incentive for anybody to go out and play tough games? Wouldn't you rather just play some bad teams, and run up a score?
1: Well, the other thing is they built the quad system under the premise that they were going to
0: reward teams for playing tough
1: schedules. Like they reward you more for playing tough road and neutral games against good opponents. Those are your quad one a games. So if you got four or five of those wins and you get to March and you're like, yeah, we we you know we had a couple bad outcomes in conference play, but you know what we did with the committee asked. we went out and we and we. We tested ourselves. We got into that, you know, really tough field for that neutral site event, or we went out and we found, you know, we played Oregon on a neutral floor that was good for both of us, or we, you know, we went to the Roundhouse in Wichita and we played a good AAC team. You know, we we, we tried to do this, and the committee comes back and says, "Well, according to Net, you know, th- that's all out the window. You're, the wins don't matter because a predictive metric tells us." That you're probably not as good as you are. All that work you did, you followed our rules, but now it's not worth anything.
0: <laughs> right, right. It's
1: it. We're going to get back to what teams are trying to do with the RPI, which is game it, which is what I think. To we talked about Arkansas earlier. I think Arkansas did the smart thing. They played a bunch of home games. They found a bunch of teams that were going to sit on that quad two, quad three line that could maybe win a mid major league, and that would break over for them. So if you win some good conference games, you get three or four quad one wins. And then you do well in quad two, it's going to help your efficiency rating, which is going to help your net. But will you have amassed the same kind of resume as Missouri? Will you have as many quad one wins? No, but you're going to look better in the net. And if the committee is going to use the net to determine your seed line, why play Wichita State? Why play Oregon when you can play a pretty solid mid-major at home and still get rewarded on the seed line? I don't think that's where we want to be that's where we were with RPI. And uh, we we all bemoaned that for years until the quad system came in. And now it seems like if the committee keeps going this way, we're just going to see a new version of that.
0: So uh, Missouri shares a common opponent um, with with several teams here and Oral Roberts. Um, Missouri beat Oral Roberts by... Uh, 27 points, Um, Wichita State uh, made the tournament, Um, they beat Oral Roberts by 5, Oklahoma State beat Oral Roberts by 5, Oklahoma beat Oral Roberts by 14, and Arkansas beat them by 11. There's your efficiency margin, but you know, like, like, and again, this is, this is why I go about like of all the years where you're just going to like blindly use, uh, analytics, it, it's a year where you don't have nearly enough data to give you the right kind of set to, to be a good judge of that. You have to, you have to go by resume. Um, And to the Missouri fans who are like, well, Missouri shouldn't have lost those games. Like, all these teams are losing games. (laughs) Like, all of them. They're all losing games. Yeah, like, Missouri lost uh, ugly at at Ole Miss. Missouri lost ugly at home to Tennessee. You really wish he could take back the way that second half unfolded at Mississippi State. I mean, the rest... They're all close losses. Like what? I sorry. I like. I just. I, like. I feel like this is the argument that's been happening um, for 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 days now, and it's just like it's it's got it, to it, kind of the point where I'm frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: I think it'll be interesting. I'm fascinated. We're 54 minutes in, and we'll talk about Oklahoma a little bit. That's why I'm fascinated by the OU matchup because I feel like both these teams kind of have the same narrative around them. Both of them were playing well in late January into early February. Both of them made appearances in the top 10. And then the bottom just sort of dropped out. And I put that almost sort of in air quotes there. Whereas I think both those teams sort of came back to where the metrics were telling us they were going to be for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. And the real question is going to be, which version shows up on Saturday night? And the thing is, we saw these teams play a year ago with rosters that I'm looking at Oklahoma's continuity right now. Oklahoma's 49th in minutes continuity, and it's 61st in experience. Missouri's among the top 10 in both those categories. We're seeing pretty much the same two teams that played a year ago in Kansas City and Oklahoma drilled Missouri in that game or at least for the opening 10 minutes of that ball game Missouri tried to make a run several runs at oh you could never quite do it and watch OU you kind of pull away late but i'm just fat yeah, i think i think they got to the point where they had like it, down to 6 or 8 uh, point deficit and they could never quite close it beyond that but i think it was, i think it was closer than that actually well, can,
0: yeah they had cut it to oh, they three. cut it to three
1: so they got yeah. it down to one possession there but yeah I, I'm fascinated,
0: but uh, Oklahoma. I mean, Oklahoma was the better team for the majority of the day that day. Like Missouri had a really good run, kind of to start the second half, um, and that kind of made up some of the difference. But then Oklahoma made the plays they needed to make. It was it was one of those games that I I sort of felt was a a good wake up call, um, you know, for for that Missouri team, and ended up kind of being like the I don't know. Uh, uh, not what you really wanted to happen for the rest of the year, but... Um, but I,
1: I think the personnel is one we're going to see before we know. We saw Austin Reeves a year ago. Saw Davian Harmon. Saw Brady Manick. Saw Elijah Harkless. Um, So, we're going to have those guys back. Well, Harkless was a... Uh, was, he was a... He's a transfer. Yeah, he's from Cal State. North. I don't know why I thought Harkless was in there. I'm probably thinking of... I'm thinking of McGusty for some reason who went to Miami. Um, yeah. But... Three of those guys headlining for Oklahoma, pretty, are all veterans. Um, you know, same difference for Missouri. It's going to be Xavier, Drew, Tilly, and Mark, and it'll be interesting to see what. Now, the difference in this game when Missouri's playing uh, basically a revamped offensive Tom Missouri dumped their offense, and, and I think eight games after that, not eight games after this, but 15 games after this, and they put in Barcelona and the PNR-based stuff. So I think that's going to be different is how Oklahoma defends this team uh, and kind of with the change in offensive philosophy. But oh, you can guard pretty well. Uh, the 36th in Palm in defensive efficiency. Um, they can turn you no, – actually, I'm looking at the offense. It's late here. Uh, 53rd in defensive efficiency. They will give up jump shooting. But as we were saying earlier, three-point defense is kind of uh, volatile. It's not really indicative. They are fifty first in two point defense, uh, and they are sixty-eighth in steal rate. So they can protect the paint and they can create some turnovers. And more importantly, they don't foul when they defend.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say that like the big big thing for me is like the one of the big drivers for Missouri's offense a lot of times, like when when they're struggling to make shots is is getting to the line. And Oklahoma does not really send you to the free throw line. So that'll
1: be interesting. I dunno I don't know if Missouri's necessarily in position to hurt o, OU from behind the three-point art.
0: Matt, OU's, OU's three-point defense is not very good. It, yeah, again,
1: <laughs> the two-point defense is what I'm looking at. Um, OU's also willing to let you chuck threes, so that, that should probably tell you, too. Uh, they don't want to... But... Uh,
0: they're a good team. Like, I mean, like Lon Kruger is, uh, he's so underrated. I, he's overrated
1: know. as a coach is kind of work.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, he really probably should be in the hall of fame. Um, uh, you know, when, once he kind of calls it a career, I mean, at this point he's been all over, um, and he's been successful all over. Uh, I, I just like at this point,
1: I, I look at OU and I'm, I look at their season so far. They've got two solid wins over West Virginia. Uh, a home win over Kansas, who we can admit isn't is that was is, is not the Kansas that we normally recognize.
0: Well, that was also during Kansas's uh, we don't know what we're doing stretch, where they actually dropped out of the top twenty-five. Um, top twenty-five. Uh, I can't
1: remember if they beat Texas when Texas was coming back off its COVID pause or not. Uh, They did beat Alabama at home, but that was with a banged-up Herb Jones. But still, home win over Alabama by five,
0: 66-61, awfully. Yeah, so that was Texas' first game back from uh, a 10-day COVID pause. Uh,
1: Beat Alabama at home with a banged-up Herb Jones, but still, Missouri has one of those (laughs) wins, too. Um, Close uh, home win over Iowa State. Two-overtime win at West Virginia. And then the wheels kind of fell off in the last month. They... uh, Lost to Kansas State in Manhattan, and Kansas State has not been good this year. Uh, Then Cade Cunningham got them twice in a weird kind of back-to-backer with uh, um, rivalry games. Then they took a home loss to Texas, and Texas by that point, I think, it kind of started to figure things out again. And then they beat Iowa State in the Big 12 tournament, lost to Kansas by seven. So... Hard to tell uh, they caught Oklahoma State as it was hot down the stretch and Texas was kind of finding itself again and when they met Kansas again, Kansas has kind of tweaked how it's defended and David McCormick has started to figure some things out so uh, I don't want to say that OU's you know terrible but there are some circumstances and context that matter but it'll it's an eight nine game. these are almost always toss-ups I I happen to think that Missouri, May have a little bit more on the front line. I think they've got the guard play to match Manic and Harmon. Uh, but, again, it feels like we say this all the time. It, what are they going to get from Xavier Penson? And is Mark Smith going to show up? Like that, It. I don't think, you know, we can scout this game to death, but I, I really think at this point that's what matters for Missouri is will Mark or X show up? And if not, who from the bench is going to be able to contribute behind them? Yes, yeah. that's the formula for this team. Um, we could talk about Gonzaga, and if they get Gonzaga in the next round, but I think we, you and I, both feel the same way about how that's going to play out if if they advance to face uh, that death machine out of Spokane.
0: Yeah, you know, like I, I will give some some credit to Missouri for this. I, I do think that of a lot of the eight, nine matchups that Gonzaga can face. They're probably the team that'll make things maybe the most difficult, but I just, I mean, they're just an absolute death machine on offense. And for, I mean, just to kind of, I realize like everyone's like, Oh, well, you know, Gonzaga hasn't really played anybody. Um, It doesn't matter. I I haven't played anybody.
1: They played Kansas, played West Virginia. They played Iowa, they played Virginia. They played BYU.
0: Yeah, I think that they haven't played anybody lately. So, you know, maybe you're thinking you can kind of catch them slipping because they haven't had any, you know, really tough games. BYU shot the lights out in the first half and still lost by double digits. So, um, like Gonzaga, their their adjusted efficiency margin is 38.05. I mean, it's just like, it's just insane. They're a good defensive team. Mark Few has always kind of fielded good uh, defensive teams. Um, uh, gonzaga is the team that i think is gonna is gonna win their it all. best uh, rebounder
1: is a six five guard <laughs> like they it, it's the one thing i would say about they haven't played anybody while oh, they're not locked in gonzaga basically had a shot at its first national title wiped out last year by covid you don't think they're gonna show up absolutely locked in and looking to just Eat souls for six games in Indy. Like I this is what they've been playing for all year is to get to these six games. So I I know we're a Missouri podcast, but like I think I ran this a couple weeks ago. Like, even if Missouri plays its A game, like its best quad one level game and Gonzaga's off a little bit. Gonzaga's still like fifteen points. Like it
0: I don't think I think this is at least don't like if Missouri finds a way to keep this to single digits. Like I think you throw a party it's I, I, I really don't like waxing poetic about college basketball teams because of how um, just, I mean, how much of a crap shoot it can be from night to night. Uh, Gonzaga is as good of a basketball team as there's been in the last several years. Like the, I will be very surprised if they, they are not in the Final Four. I will be moderately surprised if they don't uh, if they don't win at all. I just I, I think they're the best team in the field. Um, I think stopping them on offense is going to be uh, you're not going to stop them. They on don't offense. run you sets. Can to, they just run yeah, continuity they just, motion. They just play off each other. They make uh,
1: smart reads, the, smart cuts. They move the ball. They.
0: They're talented.
1: Drew Timmy in the post (laughs) is just Like Drew Timmy is what I think a lot of us kind of hope Jonte Porter would be if that like he's just got that kind of game.
0: And like (sighs) he can He's got a twenty six point five percent usage rate and a one twenty seven point nine offensive rating. And again, like this is this is this is a guy who is clearly uh better than his competition in in the West Coast Conference but uh the player of the year in the uh the Big 10 uh Garza I mean he had 15 points 6 to 10 um played 25 minutes at a 112 offensive rating against uh West Virginia also a team known for Big um,
1: athletic wings or big athletic. Well, and and
0: this is a time where they had they had the two bigs. They still had. Chui so uh, Yeah. Uh, so Culver and Chui uh, Bay. He had 17 points. He had 28 against Auburn. 25 against Kansas. Um, 29 against Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia's got good bigs. Um, Missouri's got one. Yeah, like
1: solid bigs. Like,
0: I I I do think that. I, and you know, like I, you, you you never want to shy away from a challenge. Um, and I I think that there are a lot of draws in the N C A A tournament that I would have felt good. And I said I think I said this last week. Um, when you talk about like matchups, like Gonzaga is just it's a, they're a terrible matchup for a lot of teams. We're bringing Andrew Nimbard off the bench. Like I think the the matchup that that you hope for if you're Missouri, uh. I mean honestly like a rematch with illinois would be better i think you could you could maybe
1: try and bully could, baylor a little bit i guess yeah
0: like you could you could you could muck it up with baylor or michigan i just don't think that like the way gonzaga plays i think it's a like if if Missouri's fortunate enough to beat oklahoma i think it's probably like a 10 point game at halftime <laughs> at least uh and if you like, if you could keep it like under five points at halftime, like you could maybe muck it up for the next ten minutes to kind of make hope it. You're, hope you're there uh, in closing a time. A little, like really, like this is this is the goal is is to just sort of keep it close enough that you can you know muck it up and and you know but really like they didn't they they don't panic they had they had everything on the line against BYU the undefeated season all that stuff and and. And Jalen Suggs just decided, ah, I'm just, I'm just gonna hit like a couple threes here, and and we're, the, and, we're... and we'll take this, we'll take this like this two point lead, and now it's like a twelve point lead, and game's over. It's just like that's when just... they
1: flip the switch, it's just it's so brutally efficient at putting you down. Like you look up and go, I thought we were in this, and you're
0: not. I, I love watching this team. I'm actually disappointed that I have to watch Missouri play them, like because I don't. I just like to watch them. And now I have to watch them with like a rooting interest. <laughs> uh, and like, this is the scary uh, thing.
1: They're, they're getting. They have Jalen Suggs, who's a top 15 kid, top t- five star kid. Think about this. They are right now also um, crystal balled to land. Uh, I believe the number one recruit in 2022. And also Hunter Salas, <laughs> a five star. Hunter Salas, up. yeah. <laughs> like chet holmgren hunter salas two top 10 five stars could be at gonzaga next year and like
0: i love hunter salas man what a what a terrific player so
1: that's the thing like they're getting like andrew nimbard is like a former high four-star kid Jalen suggs was a five-star drew timmy was a high four-star
0: like well Jalen suggs was a so he was like a low five-star But the difference between Jalen Suggs and what, Jalen Suggs was a dual sport athlete. He had scholarship offers to play quarterback to like Ohio State. Like he is a legit two sport athlete. Uh, He decided he was gonna concentrate on basketball, which I've always thought was like the right move. Like if you're gonna concentrate, if you're elite at both sports, you're gonna make way more money playing basketball. You're gonna have a much longer career. Uh, And the risk to like potential head injuries is drastically reduced. and he's turned himself into a lottery pick. He's going to have a long, long NBA career. Like, and the,
1: the thing about this is, like, I'm looking at Julian Strother, who I think was, like, a former top 75 kid. It's just, like, parked on the bench. Just, like, sitting there, hanging out. He's out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Strother was the number 70 recruit in the country. And he's just sitting on the bench, playing 16.7% of total minutes. They're just parking top 75 dudes now it's the level that they're at is it feels like a national title for them this year is coronation of, of them as taking a blue blood spot. It feels yeah. like that's what this is building towards the 20 years of consistency, the last seven or eight of being consistent in the sweet 16 and the second weekend now recruiting at a level where they're drawing five-star talent in the national title would just affirm that. I mean,
0: well and, and so yeah so a lot of the argument here for a lot of people are like oh well you, you drop them into a power conference league and they won't you know they won't be quite the same it's like well no they won't they won't go undefeated every year but they um but they, i guarantee this Gonzaga team would win like they would win every power conference league this like this team would they would win the ACC they would win the SEC uh they would win the Big 12 they would win the Pac 12 like put them in those leagues, they would win.
1: It would take a league like the Big Ten, where there's five or six deep teams at the top, to do it. Like it, that's where you'd have to be, is a league.
0: Yeah. So like they would they would catch some losses in in the Big Ten. Uh, they would catch some losses in the Big Twelve. They would probably lose a few games if they're in any of those other leagues, but they would still win them. Like, and that's the thing. Like when you play. In the power conference leagues, you're going to lose basketball games unless you're just like, I think, you know, Kentucky went undefeated a few years back and the league wasn't great that year. And so that kind of helped Kentucky. um, But they also had, like, two classes on top of each other that were just, like, five five stars in each class. Was that class? when we were doing so the were... Platoon A and Platoon B systems back in fifty? Yeah, I, th- I think so. That was, like, it was, like, with the Carl Anthony Towns and the Harrison Yeah, that's when they and... were
1: platooning that year. That was, like, yeah. just, Squad A was, I think I remember reading something like that. Like,
0: Ulysses and Booker. Yeah, and uh, They just... were
1: just a machine. What was the SEC that year? And then we'll have to get out of here. But the SEC that year was the fifth Best conference in the country. It was yeah. five out of six power conferences. It was probably one of the not the weakest it's been, but it was we, the investments that the SEC had made in basketball hadn't quite shown up yet. We were SEC basketball fever was just starting to break back then. Um, but yeah, that team was monstrous, and it was in
0: yeah. And Keanu Post still volleyball uh, blocked that Devin Booker dunk attempt.
1: Do it. So small.
0: Do it post. Do it. For, do it.
1: <laughs> I'm looking up what the West Coast Conference is. So we got to get yeah, out we of do. here. We're at like... The, the last point so, is the West uh, Coast Conference was basically as good this year as the SEC. Close to being as good this year as the SEC was when Kentucky went undefeated.
0: At it. So that... A uh, little, little help from the team at the top. A mm-hmm. little help. So the... Uh, yeah. So we will... Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, so Missouri is... If they... If they beat Oklahoma, um, Missouri will play on Monday night. So they're playing Saturday and and, and Monday. Is is that that bracket? Um, so we are probably not going to record on Monday night. Uh, regardless, I think it's let's just watch basketball. How's that? Uh, and then we'll just do Tuesday. Um, and then uh, we'll. we'll we're probably looking at the offseason at that point. That's fine. Then the transfer um, portal, maybe, baby. Maybe, maybe Norfolk State will, will will pull off the big upset. You uh, owe and, us. And take down the Zags. You owe us. And we'll, we'll get a second round rematch. Um, but yeah, so we'll be back next week to, to kind of talk about the the NCAA tournament, what happened. Um, and, and we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next week. Few weeks because Missouri is kind of gearing up on some recruits. We're going to talk about you know transfers and grad transfers and and all that kind of stuff. So uh, until then, thanks.